Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 28th of April 2017. February this year marked the centennial formation of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, also known as the WAC. Dr. Samantha Filo-Gill has written a new history on the WAC, which details its creation, the experience of the women who volunteered, and the role they, and the Corps, played during the First World War. I interviewed Samantha recently about her book, published by Pen and Sword, and started by asking her where her inspiration for the book came from. A few years ago, I decided that, as well as my day job, I was going to take a master's degree in creative writing. And during my early dissertation research, I discovered the fact that women had first joined the army via the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in World War One, And it sparked an interest that just wouldn't go away. And for one of the degree modules, we had to plan but not actually write a novel. And I chose the subject of a woman who joins the WAC in order to go to France and pursue her ambition of becoming a war artist. So I went to the Imperial War Museum and did lots of archival research. And I listened to some really good interviews that were done in the 70s and read letters and diaries, etc. And I was baffled as to why these women were so little remembered. And I was fascinated by their story. And I then made the decision that I needed to tell that story. So I read for a PhD for which I wrote the full novel that I had planned, as well as a thesis on the representation of women war workers in World War I literature. But in terms of how I then came to write my current non-fiction book, well, when I started my PhD, I was surprised to find that only two books had been written specifically about the core. Um, these were Even Khaki by Edith Barton and Marguerite Cody, published in 1918, and a short history of the Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps by Colonel Julia Cowper, which was published in 1967. But neither of these books have been in print for many years, and copies are difficult to obtain. And there are other books that have chapters on the WAC, but I found that all of these books each has had an emphasis on different elements of the history of the Corps and used the women's own words to sort of varying degrees. Well, I wanted to read a non-fiction book that pulled all this material together and it didn't exist. So I decided to write it and I sent a proposal to Pen and Sword, the publishers, and was thrilled when they commissioned me. So why was the WAC formed? Because it's really interesting. How does it and also how does it relate to other formations, like for instance, the VADs and some of the other nursing charities or organisations? Well, the purpose of the WAC was to substitute women for men in order to free them up for the front. So yes, there had been other voluntary organisations such as the Women's Legion and there were also nurses and so forth. But this was slightly different. This was about actually substituting uh, women for men. And it came about because at the end of 1916, Britain was experiencing a manpower shortage as a result of heavy losses during the Battle of the Somme. Two things happened at this stage. The War Office wrote to Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig in December 1916 to seek his views on recruiting women to work with the army out in France. And in the same month, the Army Council instructed Lieutenant General Henry Lawson to assist Haig in having a look at the number and the physical categories of men who were employed out of the fighting area in France with a view to freeing them up for the front. And so in January 1917, Lawson came back and set out the wide range of work areas in France in which he considered about 12,000 women could work. And the War Office therefore convened a number of conferences back in London to then discuss, right, how could these women employed by the army be organised? 
And they asked attendees along from some of the, the women's voluntary organisations, including the Women's Legion. And indeed, Florence Leach from the Women's Legion said that her women were anxious to be under every sort of army discipline and to take the place of soldiers. And by the 19th of February 1917, the women's branch, known as AG11, within the um, Adjutant General's Department of the War Office, was officially inaugurated and the Corps was then named the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. And the first draft was enrolled in March 1917 and they went out to France in the same month. And so they were the first women to join the army, albeit they were enrolled, not enlisted, because they were civilian, not military. And overall, 57,000 women served and approximately 7,000 of those went out to France. So what were their reasons for joining up? Well, it's quite, it is quite varied. Now, in many cases, the women cite patriotism when you look at the, the primary sources. But I think it kind of depends who's being asked, when they're being asked and who's asking the questions. So I think journalists at the time, for example, would have cited women's reason as, as patriotism because it would have supported their sort of propaganda-based articles. Um, and I think in later years, the women felt perhaps sometimes that they ought to say that it was patriotism. And in most cases, it, it was, but there were other reasons that they, that they gave. So some of the sort of pull factors, if you like, were a desire for adventure, um, a sense of belonging and, and having independence. But also there were push factors. So often the women were also trying to get away from harsh working conditions or the constraints of living at home. What type of woman joined up? I mean, were they sort of were they dominated by middle class or working class women, or were they very varied? For overseas service, um, which is is the uh, the focus of, of my research, uh, the women were required to be over twenty years old and under forty years old, um, and British subjects. So this meant that not only women from England, Scotland, and Wales were enrolled, but also Ireland, South Africa, Canada, and New Zealand, and thirty five women from Australia also joined the corps, and. Your question about class is, is spot on because the Corps was established along class lines and the women's position in society was perpetuated within the Corps in terms of the work that they carried out, their grade as opposed to their rank because they didn't have a rank and also their pay. Uh, the officer equivalents were known as officials and they came from the middle to the upper classes but the WAC was um, aimed primarily at the working classes and I think it's quite important to be aware that in the First World War, there was no one experience for women, no sort of every woman. And this was equally the case for the WAC. So they came from different ages, different social backgrounds, and they had different reasons for joining, as I've said, and varying political and religious beliefs. And this impacted on their subsequent memories, views and opinions. And in the book, I've tried to provide a balance between these. So, for example, when considering their view of their overall experience in the WAC, I quote one woman who says it didn't change her. You know, it was the work she'd been accustomed to doing. The living conditions were different, but she returned to her normal everyday life and it's though she hadn't been away. But another woman said that she felt that the war had changed her because it was such an unusual experience for them to go away from home and to live amongst the crowd. The previous woman didn't believe that the she did believe that the sacrifices uh, had been worth it during the war and the second woman didn't. So how were they viewed by the establishment and society? Well, it was important to me to consider this uh, throughout the book, and I analysed the response of the government, the army, and society. Uh, and that's, you know, before they were established, while they were out in France, and then post war as well. 
And in many cases, the response was negative. And I can sum it up with a number of key themes, if you like. So there was the challenge to traditional gender roles. There was a nervousness around masculinisation, particularly with the wearing of um, a uniform, an army uniform. There were also perceived limitations of women at the time. And it's interesting with the Lawson report where he believes that women can't do particular roles because they aren't mentally capable of doing it. There were also concerns around their mixing with soldiers and immorality. And also class was a factor in, in terms of the, the negative response. And as I've said, the WAC was aimed primarily at the working classes. And during the, the war, this group was viewed with increasing suspicion and dislike by some in the middle classes. So what work did they do as, um, as WAC members when they were recruited? The substitution of women for men applied only to specific categories of work that were considered appropriate to women. So this meant that in many cases, the WACs carried on doing what they did in their civilian lives, for example, domestic work or clerical work. So for this reason, apart from officials and for women, the WACs had no real work-related training other than that received on the job. Um, the levels of substitution, that's quite interesting as well. This was prescribed in Army Council instructions and regulations. And by this, I mean that often one woman was not seen as equal to one man in terms of work. So, for example, four women were considered equivalent to three men in clerical and technical jobs, as well as in the bakeries. As well as the more standard roles as clerks and cooks and signalers, there were a minority who undertook a range of more specialist roles, for example, there are a number who served with Army Intelligence. They were known as the Hushwack. Um, they also served with the Ordnance Survey as printers and also as gardeners, and they tended the graves of the fallen. So how did they actually interact with military forces when they were, in, when they were deployed to various theatres? This is um, also quite quite interesting. They they initially experienced resentment from a number of the men, and this was primarily because they were being freed up to move up the line, and they either didn't want to go or thought that the women perhaps had little understanding of the conditions they were about to face in the trenches. And one of the women reported that uh, men at the camp had said the whack had been sent out to France to release men to their death. But it wasn't long, however, before the men grew accustomed to them. And Helen Gwynne Vaughan, who was the first chief controller overseas, worked very hard to convince the army that the wax and the men should socialise out of working hours. And this was something that hadn't been done before, for example, with, with the nurses. And at first, the army weren't keen on this, but they agreed that it would probably be better for this to happen in sanctioned ways rather than covertly, because it would happen anyway. So... They attended concerts together as well as dances and they played mixed sports. And this meant that it really fostered a, a strong spirit of cooperation between the women and the, the soldiers. So did any um, WACs actually die on active service? Yes, they did. In May 1918, nine WACs were killed in a fatal bombing raid of their camp in Abbeville. Uh, they were actually the first British women in the military to die on active service. And they were buried the following day in Abbeville Communal Extension Cemetery and were given full military honours. Three of WACs received the military medal for their actions that night. In total, 39 WACs were buried overseas between 1917 and 1920. Apart from the nine who died in that fatal bombing raid, the rest died through things uh, like influenza um, and other diseases. You also talk about how they were forgotten, but what do you think their legacy is? Um... Well, this is a very interesting question because in 1921 the WAC had ceased to exist and it was clear that 
Similarly to other women's war work, the change in their circumstances have been exceptionally for the period of the war. A question I've asked in the book is, did they leave a legacy in terms of paving the way for women in, in future military service? And I'm not sure that they did. Indeed, the counter-argument is that gender divisions were actually reinforced because the women, as I've said, took on mainly feminine roles and they weren't involved in combat, although they were exposed to air raids and privation. But the WAC was not seamlessly superseded by another corps of women working alongside or within the army. And Dame Helen Gwynne Vaughan, who was the first chief controller overseas, as I've said, and she was pivotal to the establishment of the Corps. In 1939, she was appointed director of the Auxiliary Territorial Service with the rank of chief controller. And in that first year, she dealt with all the same issues she'd had to deal with at the start of the WAC. So status, discipline, pay, whether they should wear, wear rank badges, their accommodation, mixing of the men and women. So it was almost as if the army had completely forgotten that the, that the WAC had existed and, and that they were virtually starting again from scratch. But I do believe that they did leave a legacy. They showed that the women wanted to join the army. They wanted to be treated in the same way as men. They overturned many preconceptions about the type of work that they could do. They showed bravery, strength, comradeship, compassion. I, you know, I, I could go on, but that legacy is clear to those who are aware of it. For example, their descendants who are proud of them and historians who are researching and telling the stories of women's experience of World War I. And it's also important for women who subsequently served in the military. And the Women's Royal Army Corps Association, they, they keep the, the memory of the WAC alive. And this is actually an aspect that I'm very interested in at the moment, because not only is 2017 the centenary of the establishment of the Corps, but last summer the ban was lifted on women serving in close, close ground combat. And this year there's a number of events to mark 100 years of women in the army. So, for example, the National Army Museum are holding a conference in June and the Royal British Legion are holding a commemorative service in July. And I'm really interested to learn about how women in the army today will reflect on that and how they will relate to the WAC. So I do believe that the WAC has left the legacy, but it's been largely forgotten. And I think it's really important that we raise the profile of the Corps in this centenary year and beyond. Obviously, one of the themes of your book is obviously looking at the subject of memory. What can you tell me about that? Yes, it, it was very important to me um, to show in the book that their story just, you know, it didn't end in 1918 with the armistice. I wanted to look at what happened to them post-war. So the penultimate chapter of the book covers their continuing role in France because they were out there until 1920. Um, I also look at demobilisation, the financial terms on discharge for which they had to fight, finding work, which was very difficult because they were still viewed in quite negative ways by society, and also the fact that many of them emigrated. But the final chapter considers how the WAC has been remembered in, for example, art, literature, museums and memorials. So, for example, in October 1918, the Imperial War Museum commissioned the photographer Olive Edis to record women's service overseas, and that included the wax. Finally, Samantha, where can people get your book from? Well, my book is titled The Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in France, 1917 to 1921, Women Urgently Wanted. And it's available from uh, the publisher's website, which is penandsword.co.uk. Thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. 
The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>